If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here Everything is personal right here Let me end on the N.A. Heat guaranteed when you press in the play Well, here's the thing. Let's, let, let me just set this up. So we're bringing back the Have You Heard segment with Miss Kimberly Dillon. So just to refresh everybody's memory, the way it works is I play a song for Kimberly and she gives me her feedback and then she's going to play her song for me. So hopefully it's a song that you, neither of us heard before and uh, we give instantaneous feedback to see what we think of that song. Fair enough? And any background that you can give on the musician, if you have any. Okay. <laughs> Who goes first? Well, I will say that this song came to me through TikTok. So I think you should know because you have a teenage daughter in this age group. Is that Doja Cat? <laughs> no, I'll give you a clue because they were not singing English and they also said their name in that song. I, is, it a, is it a BTS kind of thing? It is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this was Blackpink, <laughs> which is the number one all-girl South Korean K-pop band. And this is a popular sound song on TikTok. Okay. Um, I, I find I find this genre of music really interesting because I, I like the expansion of uh, I I don't, I don't even know what category it is. Is it dance? Is it is it is it R and B? I'm not really sure, but there's a, there's this whole category of music that is coming out there that's being shared uh, throughout the world that I'm not really uh, keen on, but I get it. If people are connecting to it, that's fine. I, I really like what the weekend kind of is doing because I don't know if you've heard the new album. It's, it's, it's Quincy Jones concept. He's saying it's going to be bigger than thriller, but you know, 
whatever. But if you have to listen to the whole album from the beginning to end, it's, it's a concept and has videos associated with that. He took, he, it's like a throwback to the eighties, right? There's a lot of synth pop and from there and from there, but it's also modernizing that. So it's actually creating something that's danceable. Like you can play that in a club and it's also, you can cruise to it. So I kind of like it. I think it's an interesting approach. Uh, It's not rehashing something that was done before, which I feel a lot of these people are. It's nothing original. What I like, well, I don't generally like pop music, but I like that in K-pop, they blend 50% Korean, 50% English. So I'm actually learning the Korean Korean words while they're singing. (laughs) Well, after Squid Game, I've also picked up like 10 words. Really? So now my vocabulary of Korean words is like 32 words. Well, you're a fast learner then. Yeah, I'm almost fluent. Okay, you go. I I never watched Squid Game. Some people just weren't really into it, but I thought it was pretty epic. But I love dystopian and I love violence. (laughs) I, I, I like all that stuff too. It just, with me, when something is so hyped up, I'm gonna wait. There's other. I think you might be kind of disappointed. I think it's one of those sleeper things where, like, if I saw the hype, I think I would be very judgmental. Mm. I saw it just casually and I was like, this is weird. Mm. Okay, Okay. let me share mine. Let me share mine and. intro. Yeah, I was like, well, okay. <laughs> It'll start right It reminds me of 90s alternative. It reminds me of the guy who ever sang in that song with the bumblebee. <laughs> uh, Shannon Noon. Uh, 
Yeah, so it seems like he, he has he, a voice, but his voice is softer. Yeah. I didn't like the yeah. chorus as much. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like that he had like a little garvel gravel in his voice. Yeah, yeah. So this is a band called Mad Season. Uh, the song is called River of Deceit. So just uh, you're you're right in you're in the right neighborhood and just so everybody I asked you whether you want a happier song or a sadder song and you chose the sadder one so I find this song if you listen to lyrics it's uh it's extremely dark uh very uh mm, suicidal lyrics even if you kind of that's what I got from it uh so the lead singer of uh Alice in Chains or the one that passed away Elaine uh, Staley He's the voice that you're listening to. It also has Mike McCready from Pearl Jam that's in that band. And uh, it's got the guy from Screaming Trees uh, as well as I think somebody else. From, I think uh, I, yes. I think I was right in the sense that it, not to make fun of suicide, but um, that's. What but you will anyway. <laughs> But I think that's what that 90s alternative music was, was it was like all about like gloomy, like, isn't that your generation Gen X where you're like depressed and mad at the world? My generation? Yeah. I'm a 70s uh, kid, so uh, I don't know what my generation is. Gen X? I I don't know. I think you're Gen X. You guys. Yeah. Okay. So I'm Gen X. But I can tell you, here's my opinion on this, on this whole music thing. The music is associated with the drug of choice at that time. So if you look at the music that's more of a party music, there's a lot of cocaine use and it's like uh, louder and, and, and uh, more fun. If you, uh, and if you look at the days of the 2000s, it moved into like the MDMA sort of generation. Everybody was, uh, let's, uh, let's uh, take ecstasy and go to clubs and, and this was the heroin period. So all these Seattle type of bands and all that, they're all consuming, you know, heroin, which is not a fun drug. You know, it's, it's a, it creates a dis- depressive state. So it totally, I think the music kind of goes with the drugs. Well, you know, as a listener, I was just a little girl in Colorado Springs going to my conservative Christian evangelical church so I don't know if your theory is true or not. <laughs> Heroin, MDMA, ecstasy, what? Yeah, yeah, and you have you have music like you have weed music like What's you can you can tell Bob Marley. Hey, well, Bob Marley, yeah, Bob Marley is definitely, but there's a vibe to it for sure. You're, there's a vibe to music when you're consuming cannabis. It's a different vibe. You don't want to you don't want to go to like a rave. I don't even know if they have raves anymore. They, uh, and listen to Dave Matthews Band or the Grateful Dead, right? I don't want to listen to it anyway for the most part, but I'm just saying. Uh, that's that. There's a music that's associated with the the drug of choice. That's my opinion. I have no idea. But well, I'm just can, always uh, high at all concerts. So, <laughs> behind what? Behind what? That's that's the difference. It's when you're doing psychedelics and you're doing uh, psychedelics. That was implied. <laughs> Oh, okay. I, I don't know. Sometimes people we're microdose. We're talking about weed on this show, Len. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, 
Welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. As always, my lovely co-host, Miss Kimberly Dillon. Hi, everyone. Happy to be here. (laughs) I'm super happy to have our guest on. Thank you so much, Melissa Diaz. Uh, I believe a partner at either Rebel Strategies or Rebel Rock or Rebel Rock and Rebel Strategies, both. Both. Is that as well as both? High Rock, which is our traditional thing? High Rock. Yeah. Okay. A lot of so, I like the fact that you're Rebel, and I like the fact that you rock. So I'm really happy to have you on the show. Uh, I what is what is the different? And I'll you can make your own like intro and, and tell everybody a little bit about yourself. But I'm just you have all these different like subcategories of different companies like Rebel Rock and Rebel Strategies. How are they all related to one another? Absolutely. So, you know, it all kind of started with my uh, my firm, High Rock, which is mm-hmm. a traditional facing um, outsourced accounting firm. We were one of the very first cloud accounting firms to ever exist. Um, and to put in perspective, probably nerdy. And I get a lot of people don't think accounting is sexy. But um, as recently as, you know, 2011, 2012, 2013, Software did not exist before that point that actually made it possible to be even doing outsourced accounting. You were using server-based systems. You needed to be on site um, or the the technology was just really clunky. So um, we were very early technology adopters. We've been in the top 10% of technology adopters in the accounting industry since our founding in 2013 with Hyrock. Um, and out of that baby um, grew Rebel Rock, which was around 2016, us realizing this massive need, particularly in the cannabis industry, um, and accountants wouldn't touch it, right? It was scary. We People thought they were going to get their CPA license revoked. They thought, um, you know, the, the government's going to come and shut down my business. Um, and, you know, not without, you know, some valid, you know, reason for that concern. Um, and we just you know, we are rebels. We've always been rebels in the industry. We've, you know, set set the tone. You know, we're all female owned. We have an entire female exec team. Um, as mentioned, we're huge technology adopters, which is very anti the normal CPA. Um, and so we thought, why not? We could do cannabis. We're not afraid. <laughs> uh, and so that's Good where Rebel you. Rock came out of. Um, and then I actually, like yeah, through that process, um, being in the position we are, we we build a lot of confidence with uh, private equity groups, debt lenders, things like that. So that's where Rebel Strategies comes in, where that's the funding arm of what we do. Um, so whether you're cannabis or traditional facing, we um, help raise money, be it debt or equity or you know all sorts of non-traditional financing. Um, we help with M&A. We help you know, transactions happen. We help deals come together and they all kind of feed each other. Um, our clients frequently come to us for funding or for that M&A assistance. Um, and so the companies all feed each other. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Right? And who doesn't need money right now in, in the cannabis space? Are you seeing sort of uh, the demand for cannabis and also the psychedelic space coming up now? And do you see a shift like all this money going to cannabis now, sort of people are shifting their uh, their focus on the psychedelic space? Yeah, I see some, I'm seeing higher, you know, I'm seeing interest starting to be garnered in the psychedelic space. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is I don't think, at least from what I've seen, I don't think anyone's come up with a solid business plan to monetize it yet. 
So there's still a lot of restriction, of course, as we know with cannabis, it's a highly regulated industry. Um, you know, psychedelics are not technically legal to sell. Um, and so, you know, we're still kind of in this weird place where we're like, okay, who's going to be the first mover? Cause no one wants to be the first one, right? I'll be the second, I'll be the third, but let someone else blaze the trail and get in trouble. Right. And make all the mistakes. Um, and so I think we're seeing that it's almost like everyone's waiting to see like, okay, who's going to do it first. Who's going to figure out the monetization of it. And then I'll put my money behind it because I don't want to put my money behind the one that gets knocked down. Cause they're going to be the example. Got it. All right. So let me, let me find out a little bit more about you. Uh, where did you grow up? So I grew up between Boston and here in Phoenix, Arizona, where I am today. Um, I was uh, grew up in Boston for about 10 years, um, and then I moved out here to Arizona. So, um, you know, I really have been out here for a very long time. I won't say how long, because you can do the math there. Um, and and uh, I so I guess you could call me an Arizona native at this point. So what do you love about Arizona? I'm just curious because I've been to Phoenix a bunch of times and I, and I, ha- I didn't do the Sedona thing. And I know I, I wouldn't need the spas. I need the those hikes. I need to do that. But what the weather there is really odd. And just when you when you can answer this question, I had a really weird experience in in Phoenix, I think, a typhoon. Or was it a now, haboob? I don't know what it is. A haboob. Yes. That's the real thing. That That's the real thing that we get. I don't know, Kimberly. Have you ever heard of a haboob? I have not, but I heard that there's these wild pigs in Phoenix. This is true. Yeah. All right. So here's my experience. A haboob, I thought, was like a, somebody that has a third boob. It is not. No? I mean, it might also okay. be. I don't know what the slang term is for that, but it actually refers to a dust storm. We get these crazy, massive dust storms. Maybe this is what it was, but it was also raining. Yes. And, and the rain was actually going sideways and the wind was, it, it was just a ridiculous storm. And I was, I was sitting in this place and it's like, oh yeah, it's like, uh, that's one of our typhoons or, monsoon. or maybe it was. Those are our monsoons. Monsoon. That's what it is. Not a typhoon. Yes. Now, thank you. Typhoon has to do with the ocean, I yes. believe, right? A little so, hard with a yeah. landlocked state to have. Yes. Monsoon. You're absolutely right. So it was, it was a really odd experience to sit there and it's dry and it's, and all of a sudden, it starts raining and there's like dust tornadoes that start and the rain is going sideways and windy. So I don't know. Uh, anyway, I'll go back to my question. Sure. What, what do you love about Arizona? You know, the things that I love about Arizona are also the things that I hate about Arizona. <laughs> so you brought up our weather. So right now yes. it's amazing. It's about 72 degrees outside. It is sunny. It is gorgeous. Um, it is easy, you know, to live here. We don't have snow. We have very few storms. Um, and on the flip side, that really sucks in the summer. It gets really hot and it's really sunny and there are no storms and there is no rain. And unless we get our monsoons and then we get these crazy right. monsoons that have like torrential downpour and then the ne- you won't have rain for the next three months. It's totally bizarre. Um, but it, it's a very easy place to live. Um, and I'm fortunate I live in Scottsdale, which is a resort town. Um, and so it's, right. it's beautiful. Got it. So how, <clears throat> how was your family? Do you have uh, siblings? Uh, I do have parents. a sibling. I do have parents. Uh-huh. You have parents. Wow. Have parents. Amazing. <laughs> I know. Exactly. Yeah. My parents are actually still together. Yeah. Uh, we just celebrated their 50th anniversary this last uh, July. 
So we've been wow. together a long time. Is, uh, is your sibling a uh, a brother or sister? She's a sister. Yes, her name is Jenny, and she's wonderful, and I adore her. Um, and we are. Wait, I, I apologize to interrupt, but may I think I asked that question incorrectly. I'm going to check with Kimberly. Uh, is that appropriate to ask if it's a brother or sister, or do I have to do a different pronoun association with that? I, what I'm, would be I'm wrong sure with asking a human if they have a brother or sister? <laughs> I. I don't you have to do like a different pronoun associated with that question? No, but I guess if you want to be PC, you could just ask, do you have siblings and what are their names? And then back well, that way. Well, the the name isn't going to give you, uh, answer my questions. Uh, I think you're fine, way. brother or sister. And then someone would then say, oh, actually, my sibling doesn't use these pronouns. Thank you. Thank you for keeping me in check. I appreciate it. You're welcome. That. Yeah, well, my parents uh, celebrated their 52nd wedding anniversary together. Well, it is and it isn't. I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I personally. <laughs> do, we have, do we need to get into skip? like a therapy session here? Should we, are yeah, we I know, right? <laughs> yeah, why not? We, we don't have a plan. Yes, Melissa, back to you. Never mind me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, all right. So how do we make accounting fun? I, because, you know, you just, you said it in the first place, like accounting is nerdy and it's dry and it's boring. It's an, it's a necessary part of business and life in general. So if I could interject that when I took an accounting class in high school, I had so much fun because it was the first time that like, I saw the point of math in the sense that it was like definitely due to like my money. And because it was so practical, I personally loved every accounting class I took in high school and in college because I was like, oh, this is money. <laughs> I love that you took an accounting class in high school. This is the thing that blows my mind. Why are we not teaching kids how to fill out a 1040? Like every single one of them is going to have to do it when they turn 18, more or less. We don't teach it. So I love that you had an accounting class in, in high school. That's I wish we had more of that. Yeah, it was yeah. it was the best. I didn't have any of those classes in high school. <laughs> so it depends. I guess it depends where you where you go to school, which is a whole other thing. But it, the reason why so I, I don't know. Answer. Did you want to yeah, so. uh, that's what I was gonna say. You didn't answer your uh the the how do we make accounting fun? How do we question. make accounting fun is by making money. So if you can take the information I am giving you and I can show you how to use that information to, um, to improve your cash situation, to get a financing arrangement, to secure private equity, it becomes really fun. Um, and you know what, what, what I think is really fun about it is fundamentally, I, I firmly believe that what you can measure, you can improve. And so frequently businesses are not measuring the true performance metrics or, or key performance metrics that they need to be measuring to actually make a difference in their business. So when you have someone come in and actually be able to show you, hey, if you just thought about this a little differently, how does that change your entire mindset as to how you should be running your company? And then all of a sudden to get this massive, awesome, beneficial uh, result from that, um, either in better profits or, um, you know, more revenue or maybe just same revenue, but better net income. 
Um, or like I said, being able to get a financing arrangement, it gets really fun. So is that a feature or a skill set of an accountant, of a CPA, or is that a CFO? Because to me, and I'm speaking generally for, for our audience, to me, when I think about an accountant, I think about somebody that's going to do my taxes. I'm going to get all my receipts. But what you're talking about seems to me that it's a very strategic type of approach to accounting because you're actually analyzing and you're giving suggestions on different uh, key performance indicators, as you said. So is there a difference between and how do you yep. how do you know which one you need? Let me blow your mind. <laughs> this is a little known fact about CPAs or accountants in general. We generally fall into one of two categories. And they usually don't cross paths in terms of their knowledge base. You are generally either a tax accountant or you're a financial accountant. And your financial accountant probably shouldn't be giving you tax advice. And that's who I am. And I don't want to give you tax advice. Um, Although I can, I'm dangerous, but I don't know enough to be proficient. (laughs) Um, And on the flip side, you really don't want your tax accountant usually being uh, or giving you financial uh, advice and and forward-looking statements because they're always looking in the past, right? Um, so there's really two two subsets of accountants and too frequently everyone just groups us in and say like, oh, you're a CPA? Can you do my taxes? I'm right. like, nope, <laughs> can't do it. What's the difference between a CPA and a bookkeeper? CPA is an actual professional designation and it's the only professional designation in accounting that actually comes with any sort of credibility to it. So if you're a CPA, you had to take a series of four tests. They're very rigorous. Think of similar to like a series seven for someone, you know, that's in finance or maybe passing the bar exam for a lawyer. Um, It shows that you have a base level of understanding of of gap accounting, which is generally accepted accounting principles. So that's the U.S. basis that most publicly traded, actually all publicly traded companies have to comply with. Um, A bookkeeper simply knows how to code transactions on an income statement or balance sheet. Um, There are no widely universally recognized designations. I could have no background in accounting and be a bookkeeper. I have to have it at a minimum a bachelor's degree in accounting to even sit for the CPA. Um, So there's just a lot more uh, rigor and requirement that comes, um, but it gives gives a degree of confidence uh, to have those letters behind your name. Is there, is there liability associated with mm-hmm. uh, having a designation for CPA? We sure are. We are the only profession in the U.S. that actually has an obligation to the general public. So if you think of like a doctor, right, they take the, the oath to never do harm to their patient. We take basically an oath that says we will never do anything that would harm the public, right? So our reporting cannot mislead people or we can, we can lose our license. Yeah, like like Enron. Yes, exactly right. You know, fun fact, one of the executives at Enron has a famous daughter that was in the news recently. Ooh, who? Nah, in the no. news recently, the last three weeks. Uh, no, I'm I'm interested. Yes, well, it let's, was let's Elizabeth gossip. Holmes. She's the daughter of an Enron exec? exec. And then she's the granddaughter of Fleischman Least. I, really? I didn't know that. And I've done a ton, I've read a ton about Elizabeth Holmes. Oh. Yeah. Apparently they had a yeast empire, empire, <laughs> but they lost all, and they were part of like the prominent American families. 
And then the dad, the money was declining, which he would say is why he was influenced to do sketchy things on Enron. And then Elizabeth Holmes would say that she was trying to reclaim the family's glory as well. And that's why she had so much pressure, one percenter problems, to like restore (laughs) the family. You know what always amazes me? People even generationally that can go through like hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm like, how did you, how do you even spend all this? Just ask Mike Tyson. Right. I'll tell you, just buy, buy a zoo and get some tigers. <laughs> I think it's their bookkeepers and their account. Right. Like, well, here, so, all right. So good. So this is my question just popped up. Does a CEO need to know accounting or do they just hire a good CFO and they rely on that person and, and that person's responsible for that. I believe every CEO should have enough financial literacy to read an income mm-hmm. statement, a balance sheet, and a cash flow statement and know what it means. Now, I don't think the CEO should be the one that should be tasked with making decisions as a result of that information. But mm-hmm. if I'm the CFO and I'm coming to tell you, I think we need to do X, Y, and Z, and here's why. Your CEO better understand and know where that information is coming from and know that it's legit, right? And that this person isn't making some wild, crazy decision. So give me give me a scenario. Uh, let, let's say I'm the CEO of the company and what are the what are the basic amounts of information? Let, you know, you're going to meet with your CFO uh, whenever it is, once a week, but let's say on a quarterly uh, basis or a monthly basis. I, I don't even know. You meet with your CFO. Here's sort of the shortcut uh, of the information that I need to know, the key basics that I need to know that I can go you know, ask those specific questions and study and be aware of that what that information, where that information comes from. I think it really depends on who your audience is, right? So I would give different answers depending on what the scenario is. I'll give you an example. If you're going to raise mm-hmm. money, Okay. Usually your CEO is the one that is out there putting the vision out there, giving the pitch, doing the whole, you know, here's my deck. These are my projections. Right. And chances are the CFO probably prepared the projections, but the last thing you want to do in a presentation when you're pitching to investors is they will ask a question on those financials and say, how did you come to that number? What are your assumptions? And you go, hold on. I got to go consult my CFO. Right. Well, I got a solution for that. I always bring my financial guy to that meeting and defer <laughs> to them because I, I really don't know the answer to a lot of those questions. You're right. And and the truth is really, I, you know, a good CEO in that scenario should be able to speak very intelligently to the assumptions with confidence, right? Um, otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, you, you start shaking your investors' uh, a confidence in you. It's, it's, they get a little scared. Are you really, are you really the right person? Do you, can you, can you understand the big picture? So, so when you say assumptions, like, can you give a couple of bullets? Like, if I'm going to a presentation, because people ask me all the time, uh, you know, what do I present? I and you know, I do this almost every day, so at least I have a flow. But I needed to study those uh, uh, financials so I can speak somewhat intelligently about them, just high level. But what would be the things like if you're going into a meeting, so we can tell people these are the things you, when you're pitching, you may be asked these things and really know these things inside and out. So I have a really good example. Let's say I want to go start up a cannabis venture in Arizona, my home state. 
One of the biggest things you need to understand is the cost of a cannabis license, right? So if I go in there and I say, cool, here's my whole business plan. I'm going to do this incredible cannabis venture. Um, and the first question comes, how are you going to do it legally, right? How are you going to do this? Well, I'm going to get a, I'm going to get a license. Well, licenses in Arizona are going for $25 million a piece right now. So if I'm saying, hey, here's my whole pitch deck and I only need a million dollars to get my company started. Well, it's going to take $25 million to just get the license. So massive disconnect there, right? So it's those type of things that, you know, your CFO should be doing their research to say, this is what it's going to take to start up the business. But your CFO, your CEO should have enough knowledge to say, hey, if I'm asking for a million dollars, but I'm going to go, you know, into a business that requires a $25 million license, that's probably going to raise some questions, right? Hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that makes total sense. Uh, now, is there a difference? There's a lot of M&A, mergers and acquisition activity that's happening right now. Um, There's consolidation. So the industry is shifting, maturing. Uh, and I'm speaking about, you know, cannabis industry and just even outside of cannabis. I see this in pharma. I see this yeah. in uh, healthcare. There's a lot of that activity. What are some of the important factors that contribute that you should consider in making that decision, whether it's a merger, an acquisition, or, you know, a, a public offering or one of those? Well, I'll just leave it at that because I have a, a follow-up question on that. Yeah, I think a lot of that gets to your goals and what you see as your your role in the company going forward. Um, you know, a lot of people build companies to exit. A lot of cannabis companies built saying, my goal when I started this company was to exit to a larger company in five years. You know, but I have other clients who don't want to exit because they want to run the company, right? So if you want to keep running your company, an acquisition probably isn't the best best idea because you're going to have some other company coming in telling you what to do. In that case, if you want to keep running your company and you really want to make this thing as big as you can, you should be looking at an IPO, right? You should be looking at these mechanisms where you get to retain control of your company. So it really depends on the goals of the business owner. So is an IPO, does an IPO give you the ability to retain the control of the company, even though you're basically owned by the people? Yep. So really good example is, um, let's take Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos only owns about 10 to 12% of Amazon, yet he is still the head decision maker. So it's not always just about ownership percentage. Um, it also has to do with how your contracts are written um, and, and what the management agreements are for those companies. Flip side, when you go to an IPO, you're generally not giving up the majority share of the company, at least not initially, right? You're probably going out with maybe a 20, 25, 30% offering of the company. And so usually you're retaining control at that point. That can shift over time. Um, but even then again, you know, it really depends on, so good example is, um, again, you know, let's look at Theranos, right. Cause we brought mm -hmm. up Elizabeth Holmes. She had a board of directors, right. That had authority yet. She was still doing the large majority of the, the decision-making. Um, and so it just depends on how the company is set up legally pretty much. Is there, how do you, what does she consider in setting up your legal entity with that exit in mind, meaning that what type of corporation, because I know a lot of people are setting up are like well, LLC, but you know, if my exit is going to be an IPO, I don't think the LLC is the right, uh, you know, type of, uh, 
corporate structure in the beginning, but you actually cannot IPO as an LLC. You have to be a C corp. Um, and the reason is because in an LLC, uh, you can only, you basically, whatever your ownership percentage is, is your pro rata piece of that company in terms of decision-making, in terms of type of stock. There, there are no multiple types of stock in LLCs. So you need to be a C-Corp so that you can actually control the, the type of um, equity that, that individuals are getting. So a really good example is like if you're buying Apple stock, you're not buying class A preferred Apple stock. You're getting a wildly restricted piece, likely with no voting rights, um, that has very, very little actual authority over the company, right? In fact, you could argue it has no authority. You just get the the economic benefit of the company. Um, And so really, it would be a a disastrous situation to try to IPO in anything other than a C-Corp. Okay, so... That leads me to my next question about this whole reverse merger kind of uh, thing into shells yeah. of other companies and and mergers into shells of companies that had nothing to do with the business that you're in. And this whole RTO, let's go public in Canada uh, kind of thing. Can you shed some light on this? Because this is something... Yeah, I deal with all the time and I know people reached out to me before they're dealing with that kind of thing. So I'm just trying to get a sense of your expertise on that. So I could spend a full hour (laughs) talking about the intricacies of RTOs, but it is basically what you said. So RTO is reverse trade offering. Essentially what you're doing is buying a a company in a different country, um, moving shares into that and then putting those shares onto an exchange in the most simple form, right? But you're not changing the domicile of the company. Um, and so it's it's a roundabout way that cannabis, you know, kind of kind of adopted to be able to be listed on public exchanges in Canada. Um, obviously, because in the U.S., it's it's generally not legal. Although um, it was not acreage. There's another company I'm spacing on their name right now. Starts with an A that was able to list on a U.S. exchange as a cannabis company. Um, they were the only one. So. Um, I don't know if that answered your question, but it, it's, well, I, I don't uh, want to get you, too technical you did, here. <laughs> well, no, no, get, get technical. So I, cause I'm super curious. I, you know, if I, if it's, if, so, if we can help some other person, but it's, it's about me, I'm curious. I want to figure it out uh, for myself because the difference is if you have in, in, in sort of my thinking, if you already have a company that's, that's created for, this purpose, like you're sort of in the cannabis space, I'm in the cannabis space. It makes sense for us maybe to do an RTO because you have a public offering in Canada. It's easy. What if you have a an oil company or a food company or uh, you know pet food, whatever it is? Why does it make sense for me? That's completely different entity. You may have liabilities. You have different. There's all these different things. Why? Why should I do that? And I just want to get the pitfalls, what what people should be careful of when they're being approached with this offer, because people want to get rid of their failing, uh, you know, RTO or their, their failing uh, entity. They probably can't even afford to do the auditing that you need for a public Absolutely. company every single month. So I want to I just want to give people as many pointers as they can. I'm going to tell you the number one fundamental reason to do one of these is access to capital. That's what it is. So, you know, what What a lot of people don't realize is when you list on a public exchange and you do your IPO, 
that's only the first transaction. So after that point, you can list again and again and again. You can put more shares out there, right? And as demand for that share increases, the price that you get for that increases every single step of the way, right? So the whole fundamental basis, everything about it has to do with quick, easy access to capital. This is particularly important in cannabis because there are no banks that will lend to you, right? There's no institutional capital you can go to, which is where traditional businesses go, now, you can go to alternative lenders, right? Um, or you could go to alternative private equity groups, except you run into what we call the cannabis tax. Cannabis tax is, I know your cannabis, so I'm going to charge you an absurd interest rate. I know your cannabis, so I'm going to request a massive amount of your company just because I want to offset my risk, right? Because you're a risky industry. So all of a sudden... You know, you look at this option for an IPO and you're going, huh, okay, so I can get access to capital. I don't have to pay these crazy interest rates. I don't have to give up 70% of my company. Um, and I can basically call funds when I need them, right? Pending how the exchanges do. Um, so that's fundamentally the reason to do them. Um, there's not really any other reason. And I would say pitfalls are the administrative burden of a public company is a nightmare. I don't work with public companies particularly for this reason. Um, the, the documentation requirements, you mentioned the audit requirements. Um, the amount of, I mean, I've, I'm a former auditor. Um, you know, I've gone through audits. Um, I, I worked for a Fortune 500 company prior to this that, you know, we would go through audits and it's a nightmare. It's a terrible experience. Um, and so I think a lot of times people see the, the shiny thing at the end, you know, oh, all this cash. And they have no idea what the actual burden is that comes with that. Um, and it's wildly underestimated. So <clears throat> you brought up a really good point about going out and getting more capital and recapitalizing yourself. Mm -hmm. But if, if people are looking at these uh, cannabis stocks, uh, you know, through Canada. So if I'm, if I'm trying to make a decision, I'm saying, okay, I can, I can list. And my stock will be at a dollar. But look at all these other stocks. They listed a dollar. Now they're at five cents. How can I then go out and justify putting more shares in the market to raise more capital if those shares are now, you know, one half of a percent of what they were? It's the risk you take. And actually, we saw that. So right right around 2018 in the industry, these, uh, these cannabis stocks got listed in Canada and had these great, awesome run-ups, right? And everyone's like, cannabis is going forever. It's a great valuation. And then we saw the bottom drop out, right? We saw that these companies were not actually selling their product. We saw that these companies were not actually doing very well financially. And investor confidence got wildly shaken. Um, and, and you saw a massive tumble in, in, in the markets related to cannabis stocks. Um, and so it happens. It's a gamble that you take. And yet again, you know, when we talk about pitfalls, you run the risk that your stock could be devalued. Um, and, and then, you know, what's, what's the worst thing about that is if you're a private entity, it's very difficult to necessarily disagree with someone's valuation if it's based on reasonable assumptions. Right. So I do cannabis valuations all the time. I do cannabis financial right. modeling all the time. I use very specific and um, well-defined, defendable assumptions that go into it. So when we go into the, the negotiating room, we've got a lot of basis to say, hey, we think this is a reasonable valuation, but there's no comparison that says it's not. Right. If you're a public company, 
you are valued at what you are valued at on that exchange. And there is no debate, right? That's what your value is. Um, and so it can be a good thing, but you can also be beholden to the market, right? Yeah, that's, that's the biggest pitfall. I'm so glad you brought that up because I've seen that so many times we get things that are coming across and are like, oh, we have a $70 million valuation. Your stock is trading at like 16 cents. Uh, I can do the math. It's right there. You know, I just look it up and, and see that there's no, nowhere. Cl- I don't know where you get the 70 million valuation from. So I, I'm really glad you said that. I, that makes a lot of sense. Funny, I had mm-hmm. invested in a random set of cannabis stocks like four years ago or something. And uh, there was like a bull run last week. And they're yeah. like, this company's up by like 300 <laughs> percent. And I'm like, oh, yeah, making the money. What? what? Basically, from like nineteen cents to twenty-two cents. Yeah, <laughs> it's a big. It's a big run up. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I, this is this is the whole thing. I mean, to me, I think Melissa hit the nail on the head with, okay, we went public, we grew some cannabis, but the business is to grow it, to sell it at a profit, to reinvest it, to grow more at a profit, and that's not happening. So you grew a bunch, great. Now it's sitting there and it's rotting. What are you going to do with it? You got to repurpose it, this and that. And in in Canada, I mean, you have uh, you have like uh, what two hundred people living in the whole country, and you're growing all this uh, and it's shit weed, weed everywhere. Too. I'm sorry, but it's shit weed compared <laughs> right. to and what, do you, and what do you do with it? And what do you do with it? You, you're extracting. Where are you selling it? So you know the the business model needs to at least make logical sense. A uh, hundred million square foot uh, greenhouses are growing out. Well, look at our production. We're growing a pound a, a week and all this stuff or wh- whatever it is. Okay, but it it's, doesn't unless you're giving it away and it's a nonprofit, it makes sense. But if you're going to sell it, you're you're over. There's too much uh, cultivation and there's no really outlets for sales. So it's a I, wild, I think- yeah, it's a wild misconception. Here's the really funny thing: people think if you list on an exchange that the value of your company is simply tied to the movements in the market. No, you are reporting your financials every single quarter. Your value on the markets is tied to your business performance, right? Why do we see Apple stock go down after they had a bad quarter, right? It's not because Apple is any necessarily less valuable, but because their market value is directly tied to the to what the company is doing. Um, and so, just so is it, is exchange, it profit? Is it is it profit? Is that is that what it is? Is it is it just the bottom line when you report quarterly? Is it about your profits and that's it? No, um, profit is definitely a piece of it, but it's more than that, right? You need to be looking at trends and that's what people are normally looking at. So maybe you had a really profitable year, but your revenue went down by 50%, right? You might still be profitable, but the company is nowhere near as large as it used to be. Um, and maybe that was because you lost a massive service line, right? Or, you know, there's any reason why those things can happen. Um, and so there's... I mean, if I'm looking at at valuation of a stock, I'm generally looking at, you know, five, six, seven, ten different different metrics. So who's money right now in cannabis? <laughs> I would be. What is your hypothesis on that? <laughs> on how to make money in cannabis? Or who is? Who is? Who is and making I, money on cannabis? Like by type of company, not. 
The, the, black, the black market? Yes. What do you mean? The black market's absolutely <laughs> making money on cannabis. Yeah, California black market's doing great. <laughs> besides that one. <laughs> also, Nobody. hey, they, they do really well because they don't have the 280E burden. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, uh, picks, picks and shovels. Yep, picks and shovels. Um, that's absolutely true. You know who's making a lot of money? The software vendors. They're making a lot of money in cannabis. Um, you know what? I have a number of privately owned companies that are still privately owned MSOs that are vertically integrated. Vertically integrated, I'm talking about you have cultivation, uh, extract, and uh, retail. And these guys, I'm telling you, are killing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, killing it. Um, you're looking at, you know, really, really, really high profitable companies, even with that 280E burden, which for those who don't know, is just a, a massive tax burden that applies to cannabis companies, um, plant touching cannabis companies. Um, but it is possible to make money in cannabis. What I will say is where you really have a hard time is if you're just one piece of, of the whole thing. So if you're only cultivation, if you're only extract, if you are only retail, and particularly if you're only retail, it is near impossible just because the burden of um, how much how much capital it takes constantly. Cannabis companies cost a shit ton of money to run. I mean, you are constantly putting money into it. Um, and so if you don't have a good cash source and you don't have that vertical integration where you have built-in distribution, where you can control your costs, where you can maximize your 280E deductible expenses, I mean, you're in a lot of trouble, man. I wouldn't get into the industry. <laughs> Do, do you think that regulations are going to change and are going to uh, disallow these vertical integrated companies? Like, I know there's legislation, like Florida, they said mm-hmm. you're, you're only uh, vertically integrated, but then there's monopolies. Yeah. You only have, uh, you know, a handful of companies and they own everything. Uh, once federal uh, legislation and regulations change, do you think that's, they're going to try to separate it like they do in California, for instance? I think it'll be state to state. I do think that state programs, even with federal legalization, I think, I believe that the federal government will still allow the states to regulate their own um, their own programs. And part of that is because the federal government has no idea how a cannabis company works. So for them to come in and start regulating well-run, um, well-established cannabis programs and say, we know better than you, that you're going to have a lot of pushback from the state governments. I think you'd have a really hard time getting that through. Um, What I was surprised by, actually, I really thought we would see more movement on safe banking um, and and allowing banking in the cannabis industry. And and I mean, I'm not even hearing anything about it right now. It's it's like no no one has even... But but I mean, I thought the bank regulators would be pushing for it, right? Like Goldman Sachs was one of the biggest supporters of the Safe Banking Act. Um, Because they want to get into it. You know, we're talking massive companies with a lot of lobbying power, and it's still not happening. Yeah, I I mean, E&Y sponsors Mm -hmm. a bunch of cannabis things. They have a big practice. The thing that happens in in these bills and stuff, when you get into negotiating, they start adding other things. So, by the way, uh, we'll support this, but we want $300 to go towards schools. And they're like, well— Fuck that. No, we're not doing that. And you're back and forth and it has nothing to do with the the backing act. We already agreed on all these things. Now, what can we do to negotiate, shove it in? And when they don't agree, it gets shoved yep. to the next 
cycle. Uh, so that's that's what's happening all the time with these bills. It's not a priority. And I'm really, you know, there's a lot of disappointment in this current administration because they came out and said certain things they were going to do. And there's zero movement zero. on anything. Like nothing has been done, no conversations and the excuses. What's well, COVID? We have to get masks for everybody in, in the which, world. Which, by the way, is, did you just see there is an article uh, I believe Forbes even put it out that um, apparently consumption of cannabis uh, prevents COVID. Yeah. So let, let, me, let me let me clarify that for everybody, because I've the last two days I've gotten I don't know how many emails, texts, videos of everybody screenshotting it on LinkedIn, everybody. The, the study that you're referring to, and we, we can put a link to the study, but it's uh, in Oregon, in, in a university. It's a study that has been not a human study. It's uh, an in vitro study, but they're talking about acid molecule uh, uh, cannabinoids. So you have CBG and you have CBD with an acid molecule. So non-decarboxylate, the raw form of that, isolated. And what they're saying based on their study is that applying this in a certain form blocks the receptor binding of the ACE2 receptor. And if that's the case, that's where this virus actually enters. That's the binding mechanism. So a lot of the acid molecules that are created by the plant, they they tend to act as an antagonist so that you have on-off switches. So it's not smoking cannabis, prevents COVID and all that stuff. Everybody now is talking about this. It's really, really specific. And and I had people say, hey, we have ideas. Why don't we just juice, uh, you know, the oh hemp plants and give a, give us juice to everybody? I'm like, but but it's saying CBGA and CBDA. It's the acid molecule. It, all the other, actually it says THCA and some of the other ones actually don't work as well and, and counteract that effect. So by taking this whole plant that's amazing and and juicing it and drinking it isn't going to do it. But I, I love, I'm going to still lie to myself I, though and tell me and tell every time I'm smoking I'm like, look, protecting myself against COVID. I'm preventing COVID, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. CPGs in my hair oil. So there you go. There you go. It's, you're protected. Is it CBG or is it CBGA? You should just wrap, wrap your hair around your mouth now as your as your as your uh, that's your mask. mask. You're set. You're set. And you can put THC in it because there were studies that THC promotes uh, baldness. Oh, okay. Uh, is that is that a hint? Are you trying to say something? <laughs> no, you are. Bald. I had a lot of THC in my life, so maybe that's the reason. So along those lines, I have another another question about uh, because it's so difficult to raise money and and people are giving you the the uh, the cannabis tax as as you just said and which is a hundred percent true all the way from like when we had dispensaries landlords would come in and say we see a lot of people coming in we're going to raise you rent three thousand yep. dollars a month buy three thousand more why because we can yep. uh, what do you think about crowdsourcing? as a uh, an option to raise money or or things like I don't know if you know about like uh, reg a plus type of deals or uh, which are also sort of semi uh, IPO but it mm-hmm. gives you that 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 toe dip in the water before you, you go what, what are your thoughts about like crowdsourcing I personally think crowdsourcing is a nightmare <laughs> um, <laughs> from an actual business perspective 
there's a lot of regulation that actually goes along with crowdsourcing as well. A lot of people think, oh, I'll just put my stuff up on Kickstarter and then, you know, there we go. I'll get a bunch of money. Um, there's a lot more to it than that. There's a lot more regulation you have to comply with. And, and there's certain rules, um, some of which, particularly around crowdsourcing, involves having to physically deliver a product, right? If, if you're crowdsourcing, oftentimes, like if you're a Kickstarter, you have to physically deliver a product to, to, to finalize that whole process. Um, and you can't do that in cannabis, right? Um, if you're in a different state, I can't ship you cannabis product. So it's very limited. Um, I, you know, I've, I'd be curious to see if someone has done it successfully. Um, I, I, I think it's more of a headache to be honest than, than it's worth. Um, there, there are I've other, seen, I've other seen... ways. Yeah, I've seen some companies that have uh, a device mm-hmm. and the way they get around it is you have, I, I don't want to mention who the company is, but you have a device and you actually have one, but it doesn't have anything. And then you fill yeah. it in your state with something like that. And so, see, that I could I, see working. Absolutely. You could yeah. probably do it with a CBD company. Um, but, right. you know, I think with the regulation as tight as it, as it is around cannabis, it's like, why why draw any more attention to yourself? from the regulators, right? You're already under so much scrutiny. Um, and you know, it's, I, I don't even want to think about the amount of cannabis audits that are coming down, down the pipeline. Um, it's low hanging fruit. The IRS just upped their funding substantially. Um, and they're going to be going after cannabis. Get ready. Get ready, people. Yep. Get ready. Hide, hide your stuff. Yep. (laughs) So wait, you work at Starwood, right? Yep. When, yeah. When mm-hmm. when you worked at Starwood, did you get to travel and stay anywhere sure in the did. world at the resorts? Yeah. So, so they gave us massive discounts. It was fantastic. Loved it. So, wh- so where were some of the cool places that you traveled to? I went to Bora Bora on my honeymoon through Starwood, which was fantastic. Um, where else did we go? Oh my gosh, we took a lot of trips. I got to think about it. Um, I'm just about any city you can think of in the U.S. That you know, anywhere in California, we would go. Um, awesome deals. Um, that was a while ago. I'm trying to remember where all we went. Uh, Bora Bora, I think is pretty um, cool. So we went to, I went to Hong Kong. Um, I got you're, you're asking me a few years ago now. So I'll, I'll think about that one That's for a minute. Fine. If I think of any That's others, fine. but yeah, Bora Bora was definitely like the, the pinnacle of, of my, my, my travel benefits there. But yeah, the travel benefits there were awesome. They were fantastic. <laughs> That's super cool. Um, I, I read somewhere that you have some in-depth knowledge about sloths. I freaking love sloths, like really obsessed, really obsessed. And you know, what's you know, what's really sad about it. Um, so you, you can't actually like sloths look like this really cuddly, like animal you just want to hold and like, yeah, they're like filled with mites and stuff, unfortunately. Yeah. So yeah, they, you can't really... Yeah, and they have huge. So there's a there's a place in outside of LA. I don't know. COVID probably now this doesn't exist, but it's sort of. I don't want to say it's a petting zoo, but it's it's a very small uh, sanctuary, and they have a lot of these animals that they bring out too. Uh, so when I went there with my daughter uh, one time, they brought out a sloth on on like a branch, basically. There was it was yeah. like wrapped around it, and you, and they told us the same thing. And it has a lot of parasites and. And uh, might so just be careful, but the nails in that thing, man, holy! It's like it's like almost a foot long nails, and that's how they hold on to the the tree. So, why do you love sloths so much? 
I just think they're awesome. Like there's this, whole, <laughs> um, there's, you know, there's the, that live fast, die young saying I live by like my sloth saying, which is like live slow, die whenever, <laughs> you know, I think that's just kind of like the, that's, it's like the spirit of the animal, right? You're just, that's like your spirit like, animal. Sloth. You're not fucking right. with anyone else, right? <laughs> you're a vegetarian. You're, you're chilling. You, you sleep 90% of the day, but then you're really fast in water, which is super cool. So like you have this like hidden talent. I just think they're super cool and they're really cute. I just, I'm sad so, I can't hold them. <laughs> so what's, what's your, your hidden talent? My hidden talent. Ooh. Um, I cook a mean uh, short rib. I can get some right. solid short ribs. Ooh, that's exciting. Um, yeah, that's a good one. I, uh, I will say this. I'm a terrible driver. So I've learned how to get myself out of some like terrible situations I've gotten myself into in driving. <laughs> so I, I can be very creative uh, in getting out of tight spots that maybe I shouldn't have been in. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Well, what that's... about you guys? Do you guys have any hidden talents? Now I'm curious. Well, I was going to look up with a sloth man on the Native American totem pole Ooh. Oh. wiki, which is oh. where I consult every time I see a weird animal. And it says um, that it's about wisdom and about slowing down. The type of person who's called to a sloth appreciates looking at things from a different angle. The type of person who's called to a sloth really appreciates honesty, accuracy, and transparency. There you go. That's all right. That's yeah. Speaks to my heart. Absolutely. I forgot my number one talent. Actually, this is by far, hands down, my number one talent. I do not have a, like an, an, a too much with cannabis. Like I literally, I guarantee you, I can smoke anyone under the table and my case in point, And I have many people that will substantiate this story. Um, I smoked a six foot seven, 360 pound NFL pro bowler under the table. Wow. And for those that can't see me, cause obviously we're on a podcast. I am about 125 pounds and five seven. So well, I'll take you up on that. Oh, I'm, I I'm, bring it on I'm game. Bring it on. <laughs> I, I have no limit when it comes to cannabis. There's no like too much for me. And I love what that talent. That causes that limb. <laughs> uh, ultra rapid metabolizer with uh, no, uh, no anxiety, no, uh, uh, that are triggered by uh, the THC. So oh, if you don't have any of those things, anxiety <laughs> and see, I have wild anxiety, anxiety genes, but the cannabis yeah. works for me man it, it like it just <clears throat> calms all me down. kinds though all kinds no so um anything that's uh as you mentioned so I'm, i am a ultra high metabolizer so like gummies don't do anything for me i metabolize them too quick um it's got to be a baked good that's oil-based um so i love smoking uh flour i don't particularly like concentrates i don't particularly like dab it's just I don't find it, it has the same effect on me. I think I need the full spectrum. Um, and so I like a flower or I like a, a, a baked good usually. Well, you can dab, you can dab full flower if you, if you dabbing the oil extract of the actual flower that's pressed, whatever's in the flower, you're getting the same amount, except that you're getting in a concentrated form. So if you're, if you're doing like a rosin press, uh, you know, concentrate, you're taking whatever flour that was, you've added heat and you've pressed it decarboxylated. 
now it's no longer 24% THC, it's 70% THC, mm-hmm. but you're still getting, you know, all the other uh, minor cannabinoids and terpenes. And I like to see that rosins are becoming more popular now. You know, I think it was distillate for so long. Um, and it's the worst. Yeah. yeah. And, and I really don't like distillate and, you know, full spectrum rosin um, gummies actually do something for me where, you know, the, any, anything else doesn't even, it's like, I never took anything. Well, I'm going to give everybody a hint. What we used to do when I was a kid, where we didn't have rosin presses and all these other things, and I used to have hair. So, uh, <laughs> a hair, like a, a picture or it didn't happen. <laughs> and I'm like, was this back in the 50s? <laughs> yes, when I had hair in the 50s. I'm not that old, but pretty old. Uh, we had uh, the, the hair straighteners, or we got it from these mm-hmm. girls. You put like wax paper or parchment paper on it, put a bud on it. Squeeze it with heat and uh, and uh, pressure, and you get your own personalized rosin. Now I know what I'm doing tonight. There you go. <laughs> I got all the I got all the materials. We're good. There you I go. have actually you got it. done that in the last 24 months. And How'd it go. I'm fine, and I put it in my Puffco Peak. Was there it awesome? Hey, Puffco. I need to get a Puffco. Are they pretty solid? Now they are. I went through 19 of them. <laughs> so there's that. Are you just too hard on them? Is that possible? <laughs> yeah, basically it's something where you have to turn them off. And I think that's ba- bad UX where like, I think it should auto shut off. It should, dude. Stoners don't remember right. to do that shit. No, no. You you get high on a concentrate. You're going to remember press buttons and all that stuff. I remember they had one with a with an app. You have to control with your app. And I remember one of my uh, stoner friends, he's like, he's he's next to it. <laughs> This is the funny thing. He's next to it and he's got his app and he's pressing it with the app, but he's next to the thing. I'm like, you can just <laughs> press it. You, you don't have to control the whole thing with your app. It was just uh, funny. A brand gave me a vape pen in this beautiful, like a huge box of stuff with all their cartridges, but you have to sign up for their, to unlock the cartridges mm. and you have to pay uh, a a month. <laughs> And you can't you the vape pen doesn't work unless you're an active member. Oh, that's some crap. Like, oh Fun. no. That's Do you know fun. what my one of my biggest pet peeves is is packaging in cannabis that's hard to get into. I get the childproof thing. I get it. But some of these are so difficult. Like yeah. I'm I'm a stoner. I've there have been yeah. ones I've taken a hammer to because I'm like, I'm not gonna try to figure this thing out. Just open it for me. Like I never do. Ugh. <laughs> Cut into it. Yep. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to move uh, towards our three questions or maybe a bonus question as well. So we asked this of all of our guests. So get ready. Um, please describe your first experience with cannabis. First experience with cannabis. I was in high school um, and I was at a party and I was probably 16 years old ish. Um, and my parents were super Catholic conservative, like drugs are bad. If you try weed, you're going to hell. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, you're, you're going to be addicted and you're going to turn into a loser. Right. And so, <laughs> you know, I, of course I was curious to try it because, you know, when your parents say not to do something great, yeah, of course you should try that. Um, and you know, I didn't like it. It wasn't my thing. Um, when I was younger, the, my experience generally, the, when I would try it was, I just get really tired. Um, and so I, I didn't, I didn't like it at that time. Um, I was much more of like a caffeine junkie. Um, 
And it took me a while in my life to figure out that, you know, it's probably not the best thing when you have wild anxiety to, you know, use all these stimulants, stimulants. Um, and so it wasn't until I was much older that, that I revisited and, and it really made a, you know, a, a profound difference, difference in my life. That's great. Um, you know, they say, you know, stoners, you kind of get lazy, you, you, you know, memories affected numbers, but I mean, look at the work that you do. I mean, it's a testament to that's a bunch of, uh, bullshit. It's not true. There's so many highly functional people that, you know, consume cannabis too. So um, there, there are days, literally my anxiety is so high that I'll take, I'll microdose cannabis and it, and it's what allows me to work. Right. I can actually focus on what I'm doing. I don't have to worry about all the voices in the head. Right. We got to do your DNA test. We didn't do that. No, we didn't do that. Not yet. I'm dying. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, after this, I, I I'm going to send you a code just use the code and uh, and do it. I'll go over your results. Thank you. I'm really curious. Thank you. Thank you. I'd right. love to for see. Sure. For sure. Uh, all right. So music wise, uh, as you know, you know, we're big music people. Uh, you're, do you remember what the first concert you ever attended was? I do. It was semi-sonic. semi-sonic. Child of the nineties. That clothing time. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 That song. Yeah. Semi-sonic. Yep. Wow. And Guster opened for them, if you guys know them. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Got it. Uh, what was the last concert you attended? Last one I went to, I think it was White Buffalo, who I'm obsessed okay. with. I love the White Buffalo, but it was at Rock Bar in Scottsdale. So it was like a really small venue, which is like my favorite. I'm not into the big stadium tour concert thing. I like a small, yeah. like I want to be able to, to almost touch the artist, right? Like yeah. way more my style. Well, I saw the Rolling Stones and they were not going to play in a small club. Right, venue, which fair. Cool. <laughs> but but I, I was I was so close, I could reach out and touch Mick Jagger. I'm jealous of that. The, the tickets right. were probably a lot more expensive than they were to see a band in a club. Right. But, uh, what has cannabis meant in your life? Cannabis is literally like my sanity. Um, I was going through a period of time, um, particularly when I, when I was an auditor, um, where, you know, it's a very, it's a very demanding job. Um, I mean, you're easily 70 hours, 75 hours a week, you're working Saturdays. Um, it is nonstop. It's a churn and burn industry. Um, and I was, uh, using Ritalin to, to focus and get my, my work done. And then I was using Xanax at night to go to sleep. And I was in this cycle of just, you know, really unhealthy behaviors, um, not working out, not doing any sort of self-care um, and just so focused on the work product, work product, work product. Um, and so when I kind of got out of that that um, industry and, and moved into to working um, on what I'm doing now and having a lot more freedom, uh, it's what allowed me to sleep at night. I mean, I, I, it's the first thing that allowed me in years to sleep through the night. And it like, I mean, it's just been, it's been a godsend for me. It just, it helps me maintain my sanity. That's great. Uh, okay, bonus question. Please describe what your room looked like growing up. Okay, so room looked like growing up. It was girly, right? So it had I had white furniture. It was all like the flourishes and stuff on that, and had a big purple bedspread, and which is funny because I wasn't necessarily a super girly girl, but my room was super girly. I don't know. <laughs> So no posters on the, on the walls or anything like that. So the posters were definitely there in different periods. When I was a little younger, there was a lot of in sync, right? When I was like right. a tween, and then we moved into some tool and some 
you know, Perfect Circle, some Incubus. I was really obsessed with Brandon Boyd. Um, of course. Of course. Who wasn't? Who wasn't? Who wasn't? Right. Um, I loved Jared Leto when he was in 30 Seconds to Mars, you know, so I had a lot of that stuff. So it did transition. <laughs> Got it. Jared Leto, when he was in that show, My So-Called Life. Oh, Jordan Catalano. Woo! <laughs> and then, but then he went off the rails in his later life, and now he's like a total nutbag, which is kind of sad. But yeah. I, I like the Joker version of him. Yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. He's I actually liked him as the Joker, personally. I know yeah. people gave him a lot of shit, but... I thought he was great. But, all right. Anyway, Melissa, where can people learn more about Rebel Rock, Rock all your Rebel... Uh, businesses, where can people find you on social? And if they wanted to engage with you, what are some of the ways they can find you? Yeah. So go to www.rebelrock.co. It is a .co. Um, you can go to highrock.co. You can go to rebelstrategies.co. Um, all of those you can get through to me, contact our team. We have incredible teams with us. Um, and on on LinkedIn, find me, Melissa Diaz. Um, obviously, I come up under Rebel Rock. I come up under High Rock. Um, Facebook, Melissa Diaz. Um, and I'm private on Instagram, so you probably have a hard time finding me. But that's that's my that's my private social media. Good call. Cool, cool, cool. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. We learned so much. And uh, yeah, appreciate your time. And I'll send you that Thank code. you for having me. It's been really fun. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Right. Take care. Bye. Right. Stay safe. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Cannachix Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.